the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. This week we go behind the scenes at SNG Barrett. JECpodcast.com Hello, welcome to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you here and uh, you find me currently sat in my car and I'm in the middle of Shropshire, in Bridge North in fact. And in fact I'm sat in a car park outside one of the world's biggest suppliers of Jaguar parts. I'm of course talking about SNG Barrett Group. I'm here sat in their car park and looking at the building and the SNG Barrett flags are flying high. There's a special edition F-Type parked out the front as well and also the name Lucas of course a heritage name within the British motor industry on the front of what from the outside looks like quite a moderate sized building but I have a suspicion that this very posh looking facade hides a huge facility behind and that's what we're going to do today we're going to go and explore SNG Barrett we're going to go inside and meet Julian Barrett who runs the joint, and let's find out how they operate, what goes on behind the closed doors in there, and let's get some insights into how SNG Barrett keep Jaguars on the road. Well, here in the reception area of SNG Barrett, you get greeted with a lovely welcome. And uh, not often would you get greeted like this, but actually behind the counter is Julian Barrett himself. Hi, Julian. Uh, hello, Wayne. Really good to see you. Welcome to SNG Barrett. Thank you very much. Now, obviously, I've got the royal welcome here because we're <laughs> recording the Jack Enthusiast Club podcast. But this is front house, isn't it? This is where it all begins for SNG Barrett. This is where all your customers will come and find the parts. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, do our business is predominantly a mail order business, but we really like to see people coming in to see us as well at SNG Barrett and coming and pick up their parts. And actually, face to face with the customers is still a really important part of what we do. Hence, we've got a comfy sofa and a, and a counter here where we can serve people. I do like that. It's the uh, Union Jack themed comfy <laughs> sofa, which yeah, is excellent. Right. But uh, of course, you'll come here. You'll uh, you'll buy your bits over the counter. You'll grab your stuff and you'll go. But we're going behind the counter after we've rung the bell. <laughs> and uh, we're going to have a look round. So here on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we're going to go behind the scenes at SNG Barrett with Julian Barrett himself and behind the counter. I mentioned the fact that from the outside, this building doesn't look that big at all, but it hides a secret. And that is the massive facility that sits behind it. So, uh, Julian, uh, take us for the tour. Where do we go first? Uh, I think we head from here into into the warehouse and see what happens once you've uh, once you've placed your order and how we actually get it from uh, this point into your hands or into your house. OK, lead the way. So, uh, like all factory facilities, and that kind of is what we're going into here, a big warehouse, really. We've got PPE to wear. <laughs> so, uh, Julian's just handing me the uh, customary fluorescent jacket, which I'm going to try and pull on whilst holding a microphone, which is a skill I never thought I'd develop. Yes, we should have perhaps done this a little bit beforehand. <laughs> okay. So we're looking at, firstly, uh, racks of bins here with small components in them. And then as we walk through, uh, the sort of scale of this warehouse, Julian, starts to unveil itself, doesn't it? And the first thing we come across is forklifts. So um, this is, a, I guess, where you store 
most of the bits, but obviously not all. Right, so we have, uh, we have four warehouses at S&G Barrett. We have this main one here in the UK in Bridge North, and then we have one in America, one in France, and one in Holland. But everything basically comes through this UK warehouse when it's on its way out to our other branches as well. Uh, we ship out about between 45 and 50% of our products from our UK warehouse direct to end user customers. So those would be customers here in the UK, but they'd also be customers in other places where we don't have a branch. We have, for example, we have a lot of Australian customers, Scandinavian customers, that kind of thing, where we don't have a branch um, but then our um, the other 50% or so is sent out from our locations abroad so those two locations in Europe and then the one location in in, in North America uh, what we keep in our other branches so not the UK branch is a range of parts that we'd expect that the customer would expect us to have on the shelf so all the kind of service crash repair stuff we'd have all of that on the shelves in our branches whereas the the wider range of stock is here in the UK um, which we supply to our branches twice a week so if there's something you you know the, the kind of slower moving or more niche products that you wouldn't expect us necessarily to have ready to go in in holland or in america um, we ship out from the uk um twice a week to each branch so you never got a long wait right wherever you are in the world for for our products and how does the sort of technology work in here because you've got so many parts on so many racks how do you find them all uh, it's definitely a challenge, and we we are quite um, we are quite confined for space here in Bridge North. Um, but we have some quite clever little bits of tech that we use to uh, to, to make it easier for us. Um, starting with these uh, enormous uh, picking towers that we use here, which you can probably describe a little bit better than uh, a little bit better than me. Yeah. So what I'm looking at here is a sort of long corridor, in fact, where on the left hand side you've got the big plastic parts bins that you'd expect to see in most warehouses but on the right hand side are what can only be described as big metal towers they disappear up into the roof with bays underneath with boxes full of parts and there's some ingenious looking computer screens around as well and they're making lots of whirring noises so what's going on here julian this looks very high tech so these are our uh, picking towers and what they basically do is they bring the part to the picker rather than the picker going to the part um so these allow so basically if you consider if you think of a warehouse a warehouse is not actually mainly made up of shelves it's actually mainly made up of aisles so there's a lot of space that is kind of dead space most of the time so this these take the uh, the dead space out of a warehouse and we really use them not for the faster moving products we use them for the for the slightly slower moving products but it allows us to keep a really really wide range of products in stock without having to build an enormous warehouse to do it so the, the, these enormous towers here bring uh, they'll be picking a certain picking ticket for, for the customer it'll bring this shelf to it and if you can see there uh, Wayne that red laser on there is the part that the guy's got to pick next. so what we've got is a plastic tray and literally the back wall has just like disappeared from the back of this big metal cabinet that's the height of the warehouse and from behind this set of plastic trays has come forward with a whole plethora of parts on it and as Julian describes, there's a big red dot sat above one of the trays, and that's doing what? That tells the that tells the picker which one to pick. Um, so he'll <laughs> arrive in a minute uh, with this picking ticket. He'll take one of those off the. Uh, that, that's actually in advance of the the, the picker arriving. That'll already be right. teed up, uh, ready for him to pick. So it's all about trying to get the the most efficient use of the space and trying to get the most the best the best result for our customer in terms of being able to get the products out the door on the day that they want them which is a real challenge because it's such a massive product uh, that we sell and a very small amount of that is regularly sold stuff and then there's a really long tail of things that we that we sell much less much less frequently 
Um, so as you can see, the pickers just come here, pick that one thing, then he'll press the uh, the done button, and this will now disappear into the. Uh, oh no, there's another one from the same. Another one from the same ah, shelf. So another red light has just <laughs> jumped from one section of this tray to another, and so another picker will come along and see his red dot and pick that part. And yeah, there's the obviously these numbers that we've seen on the screen here tell them what invoice number that is and all the other sort That's of right. information. Yeah, tell you the part number that they're picking, and um, yeah, it's well, you know, one of the challenges for us is that we sell we sell everything for your for your Jaguar. So that goes from your bonnet from an e-type which is the most expensive thing that we sell right down to nuts bolts washers screws you can see on the shelf here we're down to some tiny little nuts um but they're all you know they're all designed to, to as we say keep your jaguar on the road and the reality is you just couldn't really deal with a customer orders quick enough and b the sheer volume of variety of parts that you have here without a system like this could you yeah it's amazing i mean the, you know a lot of the cars that we're dealing with uh 50 60 70 years old sometimes um but the requirement is to have those parts next day pretty much all over the world sometimes yeah. so you know we've been a little bit victim of our own success in terms of the level of expectation that the, that the customer has but it's been stepping up to this that's been uh, that's made the difficult that's made it possible for us and if you think of a lot of our a lot of our orders go out to to trade and to garages they, their requirement, they will be telling us what they want, not first thing in the morning when we've got plenty of time to pick that order. They'll be telling us at 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon and sometimes up to 5 o'clock. So we'll take an order up to 5 o'clock that we'll deliver that day. Uh, and most of the time, UK and a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of other countries, it will be next day delivery for those guys. So it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, that's the expectation that we're trying to live up to. So you were thinking, listening to this, how on earth is Wayne going to make a warehouse sound interesting? But I can tell you, the technology in here is brilliant. Uh, the sheer scale of it is fantastic. And just to see all these little robots picking out all of these parts from some weird cavern above our heads is all part of the magic here. And, uh, you know, to see these guys sort of rushing in and out and, and getting all of the parts that have red dots on them gives you an insight into the sort of operation here. How many guys are there working here, Julian, in this section? Uh, in this section, there's about 25, um, 25 people working in the general warehouse section, and that's a, it's it's a little bit during the te- in, during the day. So in the earlier part of the day, some people work in goods inwards, and then as you get later in the day, people move over onto the goods outwards to try and get the dispatch done. Um, so they have to be a little bit flexible. Um, and there's also some of the days of the week are busier than other days of the week. Monday tends to be a, a busier day than others because people have placed web orders over the weekend, so we often have a lot more smaller orders to do on a Monday. Um, but um, in the end, then Friday can tend to be a little bit less busy because, for the most part, the delivery won't happen on the Saturday morning. It'll be, you know, Thursday will be delivery for people that want to tinker with their car at the weekend. Um, so yeah, it's it, that, that's that's how it works. We, everybody has to, to to be a little bit flexible. And what we often do as well is that new starters will come and if they're working in other departments, say for sales, for example, they'll come and work in the warehouse and learn how this bit works because you've got to have a bit of an understanding of have a bit of an understanding of it all. Well, I was going to ask you that. You know, in the old days, back in the old days of yeah. warehouses and parts uh, suppliers, you'd have those oracles that worked in the team who would know every single part number. They're, st- they're probably listening to this podcast, Alpha, and they know every single part number, can reel it off off the top of their head and know exactly where they are in each of the bins. Has all this machinery lost some of that skill, do you think? 
it's not lost the part number skill. If you if you speak to our sales guys, and we have a, a number of them both here in the UK and all around the world, they know an awful lot of part numbers. And I, I worked in the sales room for five six years before as part of my as part of my career. And eventually, over time, you're, I think it's like a like a London cabbie. Your brain changes, whereby you can memorise a part number that will be even if it's been told to you for the first time, you'll know what that same part number is the following day because it'll it'll just there's some way that it clicks. Uh, and so we have those oracles in terms of part numbers but in terms of locations in the warehouse that's definitely changed because nobody knows if, if the power goes down we don't know where the stuff is <laughs> frankly so it sounds ridiculous but we don't know where it is so we can't go and pick it <laughs> amazing so uh, we're just stood here as uh, as we're talking another shelf has come out and it's a little bit like the best word can describe this to you is a little bit like if you've ever seen in america those multi-story car parks where the cars go in and disappear off up on an automated lift and that's kind of what we're seeing here and this shelf is higher than the last it's got smaller components on it but once again that red dot has reappeared to tell the picker who is coming along in a moment uh, which order that is that he needs to pick out of the other crate and it's interesting to see how these products are actually grouped here, Julian. Is there some kind of logic to this? Well, actually, we, we try not... We, these will all be small parts in front of you, but generally we don't try and... We try not to put parts that are too similar to each other next door to each other to avoid the possibility okay. of mispicks. I remember, I remember having a conversation once with a, with a garage and they said, oh, you know, that the, um, they'd got a, one set screw or something that was a slightly different size to the one that they, they needed. And they said, well, I'd need a different size. And, and I said, okay, it's, it's not as simple as that for us. We, know, we need to know kind of what the application is rather than what the size. And they said, well, why don't you just go to the part of your warehouse where they're all laid out in size order? And I said, that is not how we work. Because we try and, you know, Generally, the pickers in here, they aren't the parts expert. They don't necessarily know what the part is they're picking, so we have to try and make it as, as, as foolproof as possible sometimes in that area. That's why it's great to get behind the scenes, because now I understand why that is and how that all works. And uh, all of the bays now, actually, we, when we arrived here, they were all kind of shut now, all full of parts, and there are one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, nine of them here, uh, all full of various different trays of grommets and rubber parts and... All sorts of things here. I'm seeing some blanking grommets. There looks like a water pump uh, gasket there. And uh, we're just pulling out a very nice looking box here. Looks like it was a key ring or something we've got in here. Uh, it yeah, it is a key ring. There we go. There we are. Excellent noise from if outside e the box. If ever the uh, podcast fails, I know where I can come for a job. Um, and we've got uh, some JLR original packaging on some of these items here as yeah. well, which is uh, so we work. Good to so see. we work with uh, with JLR both on the supply side and on the on on the uh, on the customer side as well. Um, so we have a delivery from JLR every morning um, that that does the the genuine product that we sell, and we sell a mixture of both genuine product so that is the the jaguar box product like the example that you just pulled out there we do the aftermarket product which is the kind of what i was describe as the kind of tesco's own version of the same thing uh, and then we do an aftermarket version and then we'll also do what's called an oe version which will be uh, so for example if your original jaguar uh, product was actually a, a bosch product inside the inside the box we will sell the bosch product as well uh, on that and so that's the four different categories of of part that we sell they all come with the same level of warranty they all you know they all come with the same expectation in terms of quality on the on the part but it's particularly in the examples of uh, upgraded parts you might have performance upgrades but you also might have longevity upgrades 
So, for example, a polybush kit, uh, the polyurethane bush kits, those are expected to give similar performance to what you what you'd expect on your car originally, but they will give you longer lasting uh, longer lasting performance. So, particularly if you're you know one of the challenges that we have is a lot of cars get left for a certain amount of time over the winter. Um, and if you have a um, if you have a set of rubber bushes on your car over the winter, those might start off as a circle at the start of the winter, and then they end up in a kind of D shape by the time you see the kind of the car sat there, and, and a polybush won't uh, won't won't suffer from that same uh, same impact. So. It's, a lot of it is, is down to the customer demand and what they want, particularly around brand names and, 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 and that that we'll, that we'll offer. Um, but the rest of it is kind of, you know, the, 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 the general expectation from part supplier of, of, of what we offer. And, of course, top tip, if you are fitting polybushes that you've bought from SNG Barrett, uh, always make sure that after you've fitted your bush that you don't torque up the bolt that holds it in place or the suspension components until the full weight of the car is on the wheels because otherwise they go under a kind of pre-tension and that's where polybushes tend to squeak and wear out early, you see. Technical tips as we go along here at SNG Barrett. Um, You do raise an interesting point there when you said that you had a shipment from JLR every morning and it's quite handy, therefore, I guess, that you're here in Bridge North because... You know, down the road we've got JLR's engine plant and this is kind of JLR Valley from here through to Birmingham, isn't it? Absolutely right. I mean, one of the one of the founding opportunities for SNG Barrett is, is the fact that we're here in this Midlands area where there is such a lot of small suppliers, machinists, moulding people. You know, there's a mass of small businesses in this area. Um, from here, you know, we're probably on the outer edge in terms of heading into the Welsh countryside of that. But as you head into the kind of Birmingham conurbation from here, there's just a mass of suppliers. And we use a lot of these different suppliers for casting work or painting or chroming or all of that stuff and we're really fortunate to be within that base of of, of supply opportunity and you know for for us for for the JLR products as well it's important Um, but um, you know just in terms of our own manufacturing the location that we're in has been a real important part of of, of our development over the years. So we picked our parts we followed the red dot where next? So after that point they come down here Uh, so they've got to be they've got to be packed uh, after this point. So we're it's only uh, kind of ten o'clock in the morning at the moment here. So the packing tends to take place a little bit later in the day. I don't know if there's one that's underway that I could show you. And what we're seeing here are little worktops, basically workbenches with all sorts of label reams and machines on them, and uh, and then a long sort of conveyor belt here a rollabout where obviously the packages are are coming down and then this looks like some kind of airport scanner thing going yeah, on here so this, this is the interesting this is the interesting this is the tech bit of this section here so we have a selection of packing benches and the the, the the packing is a really manual process here because of the range of products that we sell because of the you know the, the variety of things that we sell we have certain products that will be categorized as not being able to be packed with other things so for example we try not to pack an exhaust manifold with a quarter light for example because you don't want the two things smashing into each other but it's very challenging to 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 automate that and it's very challenging to exactly predict what you're going to put in each box so what we do is we do the measurements of the boxes after we've packed them so this machine here that you can see in front of you is called a cubiscan so what that does is the packer will pack their box um full of the parts that you're going to that, that, that we're going to send out he will then put the the box onto this machine this machine will then automatically weigh it work out the dimensions and take a photograph of it so at that point we can then go then this machine will interact with our courier service who for the in the uk is dhl 
uh, and they will calculate what the cost is of that uh, of that shipment, and then it'll do all of the pieces of paperwork. So by the time it gets to the end of that conveyor belt, we could just stick a stick a sticker on it, and it's good, it's good to go. And making this process for us as smooth as possible, so that later in the day when it's when it's busy in this department is really important because you don't you know you think even a 20 30 second hold up in this area here when there's lots and lots of parcels going through each day adds up to to, to a lot of hold up so making this section here really really smooth is uh, is an important thing we've all had that moment when we've missed the last post for an envelope we needed to send but this is on a whole different scale isn't yeah, it yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, but i you know I've, I've 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 been involved in this business for such a long time that i remember the times when when at the end of the day we'd head down to the post office with the bag full of stuff that we sold that day and, and, and send it out even earlier than that when, you know, and it would be, uh, you know, it wouldn't be every day that we'd send parts out at all. It used to be, you know, every, every few days we'd go, okay, we've got enough to, to bother going down to the post office and sending it all out. So it's changed very much since those days. Absolutely. Well, of course, we all demand our parts like yesterday, the moment we order them. And uh, these are all the bits of technology you need to have in place to make sure that that speed of delivery is there so that, Jaguars aren't off the road for very long. I am slightly disturbed, though, Julian, by the fact that standing by this scanner, I can actually hear it yeah. clicking away. If you've ever listened to what a parking sensor sounds like in, in the middle of a bumper, that's the sort of noise it's giving off here. So uh, we don't need any sort of x-ray yeah, gear no, here no, or anything, you're, do we? You're okay. You're okay. It's, uh, it's perfectly safe to be, uh, to be stood next to this. But it, this, this was a bit of a game-changer, this Cubiscan for us. We have these in each of our, each of our branches because it previously went from a tape measure and then a mount typing it into a DHL screen to this where it's all uh, it's all automated and you know making that process like I said as, as seamless as possible is really important to us and of course we all got used to ordering things online we bought everything we needed in life online during the pandemic how did that change the business from this point of view during that time or were you already tooled up for it anyway we in reality we were already tooled up for it um, we were kind of, you know, the, the website has always been a, an important part of our business, and but we did definitely see a significant increase in the retail customer during the during the pandemic, particularly in that 2020, those first uh, in the first lockdown, we were kind of overwhelmed with the amount of orders that were coming through um, from uh, from from the from the website. Um, I, the challenge on the website, and anybody in a small business will know, is the Amazon challenge, where people have an ex- the, the expectation level of what what your website. Can provide is so high yes. that you can't possibly live up to that and you you know you, you you improve it as best you can but we're you know we sell coming up to three or we offer coming up to three hundred thousand different products right so and that can be things that you that are made to order and and that we order in for you rather than necessary things that we've got in stock but trying to make a website that when you first arrive you could be choosing from anything uh, from those 300,000 products to, to, to be able to whittle down to the one product that you need and the sales guys have the same challenge in terms of when they're speaking to somebody on the phone trying to whittle down to that one part that you need is, is, is a massive challenge and trying to make that as, as smooth as possible and as user-friendly as possible for, for our customers is, is, is definitely a challenge but we, we, it's an ever-growing part of our business and it's something we have multiple people who are parts experts as well as IT guys working on every single day um, to make it smoother and easier but it's definitely not easy um, but um, pandemic did change things a lot and you know that working from home thing we were already kind of kitted out for that um, because we, we we have multiple branches and we have operation like that but it's um, yeah there were definitely some changes around that time. And we're all having to look at our businesses and the way we operate even in our lives at home on how we can work in a more sort of environmentally sustainable way 
is that going to be a challenge from the packaging point of view for parts in the future for you and you know what are you having to do about that so we do um, various things here. We have a zero to landfill policy uh, that ensures that nothing that comes out of here um, goes into landfill. We use a lot of recycled, you can see this, this paper here, we use a lot of recycled um, uh, packaging here as well. So it's definitely a challenge for us and there have been times in recent times, you, you might be aware that there was a big box shortage at some point during the course of last mm. year, which meant that, that there's a challenge and you will sometimes see it where the parts arrive in a box that's way too big. Um, and you open it up and you say, why have the, you know, why is it, why has it been sent in this? But if you have a look at these selection of DHL boxes here, the, the, the courier companies want you to send it in a box that they recognize the size of. Because, you know, here it's a little bit automated, but there, at their end, on the logistics end, it's super automated. And so they want to know as soon as that box arrives, they'll have a barcode on it. And they go, I know this is box number, DHL box number four. I know exactly what size it's in and it can, it can flow through our machinery um, with it seamlessly. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's challenges around there, but there's also solutions that we're using around there as well. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. So from leaving goods out and seeing all the parcels heading out of SNG Barrett, we've walked across a courtyard, through a couple of very dark doors, up some stairs, and then we've arrived in what can only be described as... Well, it's like a laboratory up here, isn't it, really, Julian? It's like, this is, this is where the clever people hang out making clever things for very nice cars. And I mentioned right at the beginning of the podcast the fact that we had lucas a very heritage name uh, to do with jaguar above the door here at sng barrett and this is all part of that story isn't it in here so uh, explain what we're seeing on these uh, very clean worktops i have to say with some people building very intricate looking components Okay, so we are in a department that we, is, we, we call this our electrical assembly department, and we it generally does what it says on the tin, electrical assembly, but there's also some uh, non-electrical assembly stuff as well. So in here, it's the first of two um, in-house manufacturing slash production areas, well, maybe three, actually. You can make your own decision a little bit later on. But um, that, And in here, we do a really, really wide range of different products. It's about 2,000 different lines. But what we really specialize in here, both here and in the other areas that we, uh, of our own internal manufacturing, is low volume production. Um, so although it's 2,000 different products, we can, we're looking at a bench here that's got some uh, E-type lights on it. And that, I guess, is being made at, what do you think that is, 40 there, is there? Uh, so we're making 40 at a time and that for us is about the kind of sweet spot of the products that, that, that we make in-house we don't make anything one-off to order uh, we will always be doing um, production runs but they're always really small production runs and that's kind of what we specialize in um, up here um, we we do a lot of lighting products you can see some uh, washer bottles over there being made we've got some uh, extra air valves being worked on over here there's a really really uh, like i say a wide range of products um but um yeah it's it, it's it's one of the, the bits that's, that's super important for us to to be able to continue uh the, the the products that we make to have this facility to 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 do this low volume assembly work and it's generally jaguar but up here we do some bentley some rolls royce some aston martin i know down there they're working on some uh, gents and switches um so it's uh, on the retail side what we sell to our retail customers is all jaguar but we also supply 
um, some other wholesalers and also into the uh, into the factories on those on those other marks that we do as well. So it's um, it's a wide range, but it's uh, it's, it's it's quite a specialised, and we we think we're quite unique in what we do up here um, from from that point of view. What I love as well is being a heritage geek that I am is that we have some period tooling over there. I mean, I don't know what they do, but they look brilliant. Uh, so they, so we, you were talking about Lucas before. Those are actually Lucas X Lucas um, production line tools. So this was from the Lucas facility in Burnley, and many years ago we bought some of the uh, some of the original production line that made the kind of switch that you can see on here so you know the uh, e-type style rocker switches yeah uh, these these tools do specific jobs on generally those type of switches um, so you can see there's a bit uh, there's some bits in production here where this will just be putting one of the contacts in yeah. and these these are x x lucas um production line specialist tools that we that we do and we continue that lucas uh, production for for a number of different bits we work um quite closely with um zf who are the uh, the owners of the lucas brand now and we worked with with those guys to bring a lot of the lucas classic range back to the back to the shelves and what we really this is a project that we've been working on for two or three years now and you can see down the end there we've got the uh, the red and white red and black boxes of the uh, the lucas classic range and what we're really working on on that lucas classic range is bringing a real high quality product to the lucas brand i think sometimes at some point over the years a little bit of the the quality reputation on the Lucas is, 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 is not being what it was. And so what we wanted to make sure that we brought in that red and black boxed um, Lucas Classic range was a real quality product to the, to, to the market that people could trust as soon as it's in that red and black box. So this is Lucas stuff that looks like it was built in 1960, but works like it was built yesterday. Yeah, yeah. In a, in a lot of cases, that's absolutely right. And there's a really good example just down here, Wayne, of the, um, the V12 ignition conversion that we sell. That basically, ah, yeah. it, it's, it, it includes all of these bits here. It's the distributor, the barrel resistor, the amplifier, and the coil. And put together all of those four products, what we do is we basically make it look exactly like the original but the innards use all of the inner the technology from the later he cars the high efficiency uh cars so that is allows you to be able to maintain the position of the distributor and the the ignition components which is which was originally located in the center of the v on the uh, on the v12 e type it was traditionally affected by heat whereas this won't be affected by heat much more reliable particularly on the hot starting conditions uh, and this is a product that we've been selling for i don't know 15 maybe more 15 20 years but there is always customers waiting for this product there is a continuous requirement for them we sometimes we think well surely every car <laughs> every car has been supplied to this but 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 there's a there's a continuous uh, continuous amount for this is quite it's a, it's a labor intensive process this if you look on the sheet here each one of these is manually tested they get this printout to show the uh, the, the 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 curves and that on the distributor um, but it's an important, you know, it's been a, a kind of signature product for us for many years and, and yeah, people, are still, people still need it. Well, owners will recognise this as the Lucas Opus system that was found in so many British Leyland cars of the day. Uh, the distributor there with its cap on that we're looking at in one of these crates here uh, with the ignition module with those distinctive big heat sink fins that they have on them. The coils there as well and of course the big ballast resistor pack there. Um, from the uh, the Lucas Opus system, found in so many British Leyland cars of the time, not just Jaguar really as well. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, right. So um, over here we've got some door seals. It looks like going in and uh, yeah. So in this section here as well, as well as uh, that up here, we do uh, what we describe as rubber cutting, which is pretty much what it says on the tin. So this will be. Uh, 
making lengths of rubber into the into the size of the seals that you want. We also do some kit work here. So if you've got wheel bearings, we'll put together a wheel bearing kit with your inner and outer bearings and that. So there's uh, a little bit of kind of assembly work that gets done here, not just the uh, the the more the more technical stuff where we're putting the products together this is a you know the, the a cutting requirement that we have to do as well because the, the you know the these seals will be very similar across mul multiple different applications but it'll be a slightly different length for one application versus another or there's a requirement to have two of them or or whatever so it's um yeah it's, it's all part of keeping that big range of products available mm. and rubber has been a bit problematic in recent years hasn't it because in the old days it was made of more new rubber and of course now it has to be made of less new rubber and that is often some of the difficulties that we see with them so how are you getting around that it's definitely a challenge i mean uh, you know one of the one of the question marks that we that we have in a lot of areas on on the classic cars is that you're working sometimes with a moving target um because the car has had multiple layers of paint on for example which means <laughs> that the fit of the rubber uh, you know that, that it'll end up sitting too high and the boot won't close or, or, or you know and, and the, the requirement between even different high-end restorers in terms of the, the I don't know if, what you, if you still call that the shore on the rubber um, but the, the kind of softness and squidginess that, that, that people want on that rubber it's, it's a real challenge to get that exactly right but um, you know the fact that we work on our own our own range of cars here and we test them out and we try out different bits in terms of getting the car waterproof or you know we had certainly some years ago challenges in terms of making sure that the boot on our e-type stayed closed because that was a that was again a, a rubber related a rubber related issue that it was popping open a bit so the fact that we work on it ourselves is a is is, is really key for 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 us and, and keeping it you know it's one of those things that you don't want to be thinking about whether or not the rubber is hard enough or soft enough but um yeah we keep uh, keep working on it and we're happy you know we're, we're happy with 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 what we sell and we sometimes you know there are examples where we'll go look we'll, we'll offer a couple of different types saying look this one's a harder one because if you sometimes one customer will want what will be perfect for one customer won't be perfect for the next customer down the line so uh, you've just got to sometimes be adaptable to what people need officially the first time i've ever done an interview on rubber there everyone so that was great uh, addition to our tour here at sng barrett i'm walking across here because um this is dean uh who i was introduced to earlier on who is doing what dean i'm building some extra air valves for xjs okay yeah so these are the components on the car that uh, that do what exactly uh, so they restrict the airflow for cold starts. Oh, okay. It's got a wax up firm status in it, in it. Yes, okay. To improve emissions for mainly American That's markets, accurate. wasn't it? Yeah. Of course, modern cars are far more of those gizmos, but even in the XJS period, of course, America being the big market, the way that you ensure that your emissions are down within legal limits is to make sure the car is always running warm and efficient. And that was one of the devices that you'll find on an XJS that does that. Made by Lucas, of course, in the day in Birmingham, but now being made by you here in Bridge North. So uh, it must be a fascinating job, though, to bring all of these old cars that you see out on the road back to life. That's right, yeah. We, as I say, we do a variance of different parts for all different cars, and um, it's, uh, every day is different, so it makes it exciting. What would seem like quite simple parts, they take a lot of small components, and if you look at this little bit here that's part of the extra air valve, it doesn't have another job that it can do, and it's not something yeah. you can go and buy off the shelf. So keeping all of these little bits uh, of components that go into these into the end products is a real challenge. And if you look at... If we head over here to where um, it, it seems like quite a simple product. So this is the E-Type rear lights, pretty pretty recognisable. But even on this 
part there's a lot of different variations so if you imagine the the rear profile of the light is slightly different depending on whether the car is a fixed head car in which case it's i think this is a fixed head uh, version you know, i can never tell unless i've got all three of them next to each other but the, the fixed head one is that medium length because if you consider the back profile of the e-type the two plus two is a slightly shorter profile and then the roadster is a, is, a, is a longer profile. So you have to have those three different profiles. Then you've obviously got to have left and right. And if you look at this specific example that we're looking at here, this is actually American spec. So it's got the red, red lenses. Whereas we'd also keep the red, orange lenses for the European uh, specification as well. And then if you go on to the V12 version, so this is the six, uh, here's, the, here's the red, orange lens there. But if you then go on to the V12 version of the same rear light, you've got the same number of complications, apart from you've got, you haven't got the difference in body shape, but you've got the red, red or the red, orange lenses. But then we also do the same light for the Lotus application. So Lotus and LAN application, which is exactly the same light, but it's the other way up. Sure. And a slightly different bit of wiring in terms of the, uh, to the reversing light. So each one of these parts has got a lot of times a, a number of different kind of children versions of the same mm. product. Uh, and we see it a lot in times of the switch gear where it's a very, very slight variation. Um, on, on the same thing with a different number of, you know, it might be a press and release type switch or it might be a three position switch or it might be a two position switch. And if this example here, it might be this one that these, these guys here are working on is a Jensen version, but there's a Jaguar version that's very similar to that. And then there's a Land Rover version that's very similar to that. And they're all similar, but slightly different, slightly different number of connections, slightly different movements. So it's, um, yeah. yeah. I suppose it's a little bit like outside a Jaguar, you would see an MGA with mini lights turned on its side, exactly. slightly different though, yeah. and uh, DB5 on TR4s, and yeah, yeah, the list goes on, doesn't it? Of course, it was all part of that sharing of parts. And when the E-Type was new, of course, and being produced out of Browns Lane in Coventry, Lucas would have been assembling these parts, creating their components, using, as we see laid out on the table here, a whole load of other little components you've got the chromed castings here of those lights that julian was just explaining about with this rubber component springs and there was a whole ecosystem around coventry in the midlands making you know there would be a shed down some little lane making just that rubber grommet etc is that still the case now or, yeah. or how are these little things made that is still the case now i mean we're doing a lot of different products in here but we actually have upwards of 600 different suppliers uh, that supply into SNG Barrett and they can be from your big multinational supplying um, you know engine products or braking products that, that, that we rely on some, some big names your Marla or your Bilstein on the shock absorbers and that down to one man in his shed making one part that nobody else makes uh, and one of the challenges that we have in, in, some, in, in some of those parts is that when that one guy decides he's going to retire what do you do then you've got to start you know, you've got to start from scratch especially if it's a if it's if it's not a job that requires particular tooling and it requires a particular skill that's a real challenge for us and we we generally in those cases we try and bring it in house but it can be it can be challenging uh, for for sure there's there's been a number of examples over the years where one man bands have, have shut the doors and we've had to go on right um yeah, let's start again on that. And like a little bit what I was saying before, the expectation level from our customer is that, that you can order up to five o'clock in the afternoon, have essentially anything that you want for your, for, for your Jaguar the following morning. But when things go out of stock or when we're having to resource them, that can be, you know, it's not, it's not unusual for me to be months of, at a time to, to, to resource that. And the list of products that we have that are wanted is very long. 
I mean, I make the point because what you'll hear amongst the classic car community quite often is, oh, well, everything's crap these days. It's all made in China. It's cheap and no one knows what they're doing. Well, here I am stood in Shropshire, in Bridge North, watching a team of people lovingly craft all of these components for E-types in front of us, Jensen switches, as you mentioned there. It's happening in front of me here with the original heritage tools as well in some cases. And that's great. How reliant are you though on importing components from elsewhere we aren't in a nutshell there's a very small amount of products that we would import which would be the kind of higher volume price sensitive products so sometimes some of the um, bushes and that will be um, will have been imported but that in general it's not a, a bit of uh, that our business relies on at all um, we really consider ourselves to specialize in this low volume high mix range of products that isn't the kind of product that is going to be made elsewhere because it's not in the volume that's that's needed and i think that there is uh, there certainly has been that you know one of the challenges over the course of the time that i've been in this business is that oh you know and, and my dad before that is that when the, if we take the example of an E-Type, 20, 30 years ago, say, people were glad to keep their E-Types on the road. And the, 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 the E-Type was a certain value, and they were happy with kind of anything that would keep the car going. They weren't, these cars weren't worth 250 grand, and going to a concourse where the second place was 99.97 versus 99.99 <laughs> is the winner, right? Um, and the, you know, the, 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 right now, a lot of the, these, these high-end restoration companies are producing cars that are way better than they were ever when they came out of the factory. Um, so we've definitely gone from a position where there was an expectation that whatever you could do to keep the cars on the road, because Jaguar had abandoned the parts program for, 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 for the E-Type in particular, and that's where we started, anything to keep the car on the road was, was, was acceptable. And now, what the, the, the expectation level for the customer that we're having to live up to is that is, is, is a totally different expectation for a really high-end car. Um, and, and these cars, you know, they, when, you know, when they first came out, these were a relatively cheap, yeah. uh, a cheap and, and, and a version of, of, a, of a really beautiful sports car. Yeah. Um, but they weren't built necessarily with, um, with the next 70 years in mind, let's put it that way. So uh, we're having to live up to a, a slightly new expectation. But for us, that's a really, really exciting challenge. And, and those examples that I was showing you down there of, of kind of upgrades that look classic is a really important part of what we do. If anyone ever doubts the health of the classic car world and the future of heritage vehicles on the UK roads, you only really have to come here uh, to feel very optimistic about it. Because the great thing about this is, Julian, fundamentally, we live in a world where a guy is employed to fill a box full of E-type rear lights and you know you're going to sell them. That's a great world to be living in, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is for us. And, you know, it's, a, it's an immense source of satisfaction for, for, for the guys that work here and for, for me, in, you know, in me personally as well, is that whenever you see, if you see an E-type on the road and it's got a, 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 a rear light on it that doesn't look like it's 70 years old, it is, we've made it. Um, and, uh, you know, I... I always, you know, a lot of what we sell is export, and I'm always really excited when you go into, you know, really far-flung corners of the world. You come around a corner, and there is a Jaguar restoration company, and it, the, it's covered in the parts that we make here in Bridge North, and it's a really, really satisfying thing to, to, to be working on from that point of view. Brilliant. I think this is one of the most interesting parts of the tour that you're giving us here on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast today, because not only do we get to see things being made and put together, but it's also a demonstration, and I'm really pleased you made the point about you know, how many components you're buying in from UK manufacturers, because it is showing that this stuff is made here in the UK, and we should be proud about this. 
and um, be proud that these cars are still on the road thanks to all of these guys working in this room here today. Give us a cheer, everyone. See how happy they sound in their work. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Part one of my tour of the facility at SNG Barrett, their headquarters in Shropshire there, with Julian Barrett himself. More of that on the next episode of the JEC podcast, because next we go and discover the parts of SNG Barrett that develop the new products, from design, product testing, right the way through to the marketing department who puts it all on the website. There's more to come, even more fascinating stuff from SNG Barrett as we go behind the scenes and find out all the details on how they take an idea of a part they need to produce and see it through to production all in-house. That's on the next episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Hope you'll join us then. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com. 